This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to The Drill Down, the business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today is Monday, May 17. Well, just ahead, a mattress maker is jacking up prices willy-nilly, and its customers keep buying. Plus, a new approach to blood disease yielding a hopeful treatment. And we're drilling down on Broadcom, a company that's borrowed billions, betting big on semiconductors, and it looks like it's working. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's era.com. And subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, and Podbean. In fact, if you want, you can subscribe to every one of those. But hit that follow button, hit that subscribe button, and catch every show. And remember to join the Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram at DrillDownPod. Connect with us on our website, bizpod.net, and let us know what companies you want to talk about. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to the Drill Down. Always, we're doing the business stories behind stocks on the move. Isaac Webster joins me. He is our producer extraordinaire. What's going on in the world of business today, Isaac? Hey, Corey. Here are the top business stories today, top three business stories. Number one, AT&T is making a U-turn on the big bet it made on entertainment less than three years ago. The telecom giant is merging its Warner Media assets with Discovery. Now, this includes CNN and HBO, combining with Discovery's properties like HDTV and the Travel Channel and Oprah's own network to form a new company. The, the current CEO of Warner Media is said to be negotiating his exit. I will quote the letter from Elliott Management sent to the AT&T people wondering what the hell they were doing in this business. And they wrote, we think that after $109 billion and three years, we should be seeing some manifestations of a clear strategic benefit by now. Well, it looks like they didn't have that clear strategic benefit. It looks like farming this thing out giving its shareholders, I think, 79% interest in the new entity. It was 73, but whatever, two-thirds of it, uh, three-quarters of it, uh, is not the big master plan that AT&T seemed to pretend that it had in the early days. I got to say, three years seems like a very quick time frame to, you know, what did, the, what did Elliot expect in three years? AT&T's got a new CEO, and he's definitely getting rid of some of uh, Randall Stevenson's, his, his predecessor's uh, big uh, acquisitions and making some moves maybe more towards data and telephony and not content and uh, satellite TV and direct TV, the other business I get rid of. All right, number two story here. Speaking of Elliott Management, activist investor Elliott is pushing Duke Energy to break up into three companies. This would be a major transformation of one of the nation's biggest utilities, Elliott is said to be one of Duke's 10 largest shareholders, which would put the stake above $900 million. A big, powerful company there in the Southeast with uh, Duke Energy. 
At number three, we're looking at J. Crew. J. Crew wants a fresh look. The retailer has tapped a former designer of For Supreme with um, a skateboarding pedigree to revive the struggling brand. I'm talking about Brendan Babenzine. He's the co-owner of culty New York menswear label Noah, and his designs will first hit J. Crew stores in the second half of 2022. Now, Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? I'm going to start with Apellis Pharmaceuticals. Apellis Pharmaceuticals shares rose 19% Monday. They've risen by over 60% over the past 12 months. What's going on with Apellis? So this is just a fascinating company. They got a, you know, mentioned that 19% move in the stock today. They got a big phase three approval for a new drug um, that they were counting on, of course, as all drug companies are. But uh, this is a really interesting development, a really new uh, form of treating not just the diseases they're targeted, but potentially others. But uh, the drug T treats a rare blood dis- disorder called paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. Easy for you to say. How does this work? <laughs> not easy to say at all. Uh, <laughs> paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. Mm-hmm. Let's just call it PNH from now on. Okay, PNH. Um, I'll let the company explain what happens to the patients in just a minute. We've got a great soundbite on that. But the short of it is you don't want to have this happen to you. You don't want to have your blood unable to do the things your blood is supposed to do. But their treatment of this uh, particular blood disorder, PNH, is very unique. So uh, I'm going to get into the science a little bit of the biology. So there's a thing called a complement cascade or complement. And it's part of the immune system that defends the body against infection. So when functioning normally, the complement recognizes and eliminates pathogens and damaged cells. But when it's not working normally, it's overactivated. It can attack and destroy healthy cells and tissues, um, leading to lots of serious diseases. Hmm. Like PNH. How rare is this? Not a ton of people, 1,500 people in the U.S. probably. Uh, But what they're going through is absolutely horrible, and there was no treatment for it. Uh, So I thought it was interesting, not just that this novel therapy works, but how this company uh, has done so much work to make this thing commercial right off the bat. Uh, the folks over at Apellis Pharmaceuticals have kind of got a plan all together as they're approaching this phase three uh, approval that they were hoping would happen. So here's, I think it's a great soundbite from Adam Townsend. He's the Apellis Pharmaceutical chief commercial officer. And he talks about the people who need this drug and how Apellis segments that market. So the highest unmet need, one-third of that 1,500 patient population, will likely be our first target as we transition to a commercial launch. Those patients have a, a low and falling hemoglobin, and they have to continually keep that hemoglobin topped up with red blood cell transfusions. So immediately, the physicians that we've been talking to can identify those patients, and also the patients that are in that segment want to talk to their physician about controlling the that, worst. that and limiting the number of transfusions, and we believe our drug can help with that. So that's the first third, the highest unmet need. The second third of that population, they have a low and falling hemoglobin. They're less reliant on transfusions, but they're constantly fatigued. They don't feel well. They're showing the signs and the symptoms of their disease. We believe that's the next natural segment for us to target as we uh, enter into the market. And then the final third, again, these are C5-treated patients. Their hemoglobin is closer to normal, above maybe, below maybe. But what's not, what's happening behind the scenes is their bone marrow is working overtime to maintain that. And they're also showing the signs and symptoms of their disease. And we believe our drug can quiet all of that bone marrow down and give them a little bit of control. 
So I just thought it was interesting that they've done so much work, not just to make the drug, but we got to bring the thing to market, understanding who their potential customers are. Um, Townsend was speaking at the Oppenheimer Healthcare Conference uh, about two months ago. Corey, are there implications for other drugs and other diseases now that this one Apellis Pharma drug has been approved? Uh, there certainly are. That's the hope. And and these guys have targeted. Uh, I mentioned the compliments. They've 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 targeted a controlling complement called C three, which is the central protein of the complement cascade. Now they didn't go after C five, which is what a lot of other therapies were trying to target. So really today today, there's a newfound hope that C three therapy could target all kinds of diseases across hematology, ophthalmology, nephrology, and neurology um, because of this approval today. It's an exciting day um, in the world of science. Corey, what is your next drill down? I want to take a quick look at a company called Community Health. Community Health. I know it. Shares barely moved today, but they've gained 349% in a year. What's going on with Community Health? Right. So big hospital chain. Um, I want to play a little bit of sound from the Community Health CFO, Kevin Hammonds, from the last conference call. Now, this sound might be really innocuous, but listen to how confident he is that the company will suddenly improve its cash flow situation. Our cash flow from operations is also negatively impacted by the COVID peak in January and the weather-related disruptions during February. As such, Our strongest net revenue month during the quarter was March. And as a result, we expect our cash collections to improve moving forward into the second quarter. Cash collection is exactly the right word there. He chose that word carefully. Uh, We now know why he's so confident that cash collection is going to be key to what's going on with them and improving. According to a story that came out today, a CNN investigation just came out. Community Health Systems has filed at least 19,000 lawsuits against patients who allegedly failed to pay their medical bills since March of 2020. Uh, and these deadbeat hospital patients or other, you know, other hospital operators backed off of, of this practice during the pandemic. But Wait not minute, Community Health. On, community health yeah. Deadbeat hospital patients? People who what weren't paying their medical bills. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So people who left the hospital owing money. Gotcha. Community Health is in court with 19,000 lawsuits against these kinds of patients. Um, they are being aggressively pursued by this hospital chain. CNN reported that they'd filed charges seeking payment for as little as $201 to as much as $162,000. The company uh, gave a statement wow. to CNN saying legal action is always the last resort, that these lawsuits are filed after it's determined the patient appears to have some ability to pay based on credit records or employment status or if the patient has been non-responsive following repeated attempts to collect on that unpaid bill. Now, when they reported earnings two weeks ago, the company also pointed out that they had COVID-19 had materially affected its operations, but that it had received $708 million in federal stimulus funds for hospitals through the end of that quarter. So help me understand here. Community Health has received $708 million in federal stimulus funds because of COVID, but then it's saying that it's missing bill payments from patients starting from March of last year, the height, the beginning of the pandemic. And they're chasing people down for $201. I'm sure they're not alone in having patients that haven't paid uh, all their bills, Uh, but they are unique in their, um, according to CNN at least, uh, on on how aggressively they are pursuing that with uh, these 19,000 lawsuits against patients. Well, we have to get community health to come on this show so we can talk more about this. 
Invitations out. Invitations out. Corey, what's your next drill down? All right, finally, let's, let's take a look at Purple Innovation. Purple Innovation, I know this company well. I sleep on it every night. Shares rose over 2% today. Uh, what's going on with Purple? Don't sleep on Purple. <laughs> this is uh, uh, this company's done fantastically well in the last year. Now, this is one of the first companies that went public as a SPAC at the recent SPAC wave all the way back in 2015. I mention that because it's the least interesting thing about this company. So, yeah, all you hear about this business is in the mainstream press. It's mainstream SPAC, business, SPAC. SPAC, SPAC, SPAC. Right. But the mattress business is, I think, has been interesting for a long time, but it's gotten very interesting in the last year. Now, on one hand, you had almost everyone spending more time at home, more time in bed, and lots of people wanting and realizing they needed a new mattress. Full disclosure, I'm one of their customers. We bought a purple mattress last year. Just one? And it's great. Yeah, just one. And the pillows. Okay. And the pillow. They mentioned the pillows in the conference calls, a growth aspect of their business. Uh, and I, I do know the mattress business well. I followed tempur for a long time uh, once I owned a lot of tempur shares, once I was short a bunch of tempur shares uh, at, a, at a hedge fund I worked at. But um, I visited in the course of that research hundreds and hundreds of mattress retailers um, over the course of about two years all over the country. Now, the problem is most mattress stores are sold, most mattresses, I should say, are sold to mattress stores or department stores. And most of those mattress stores and department stores were closed for most of the last year. But Purple was already selling mattresses online, really from the get-go. And they were expanding into the big box retailers, the Costco's of the world and so on, many of whom were open. So while the three S's in the mattress business— Wait, wait, wait. What are the three S's? What is that In the mattress business, there are three dominant brands. Sealy, Simmons, and Serta, the three Ah, S's. Throw in Tempur-Pedic, and that's the market. So— the three S's, those companies saw sales do quite well. Um, uh, Sealy Tempur-Pedic, which is now one company, uh, saw sales increase 20% last year. That's really good. But Purple saw better than 50% growth over the last year. So when they reported earnings this morning, of course, I was listening to the calls to see if they can keep up that demand. That's when they were talking about pillows and, and increased manufacturing capacity uh, when they said basically they can keep up with demand. But I was also listening to hear anything about inflation in raw materials and the cost to customers. Here's Joe McGibo, the CEO. Yeah, I mean, raw materials, as, as with everyone in the industry, we are seeing some uh, inflation in pricing, um, which uh, we're certainly hoping is peaking out here. Again, we're finding ways also to... Uh, and through our sourcing strategy, be as uh, efficient as we can in, in our cost of goods. Um, we did just raise prices a couple of weeks ago, and you know, as, as we've gone through this in prior quarters, recall that because of our wholesale contracts, it can take 30 to 60 days before we see the full benefit of those price changes flow through. Uh, but we did raise prices uh, again. Um, you know, we've, I believe this is the fourth time we've done this now uh, successfully. So far, early data shows uh, that it's uh, yielding the results we anticipated. Um, so we'll continue to look at it. So yet another company telling us that inflation is here now and that they're raising prices right down the line to the consumer. All right, up next, Joanne Feeney joins us from Advisor Capital Management. We're going to drill down on the serial acquirer, otherwise known as Broadcom. The drill down is brought to you by ERA. 
ERA's event access and monitoring intelligence platform improves earnings season and the investor events in between. Through comprehensive calendar tracking, one-click event access, dynamic monitors, multicasting, and more. Powered by an advanced language processing engine, which consumes 40,000 plus investor events annually across 10,000 plus global equities. Learn more at era.com. And remember to join the drill down on Twitter and Instagram at drill down pod. Link up with the business podcast network on LinkedIn and check out our website, bizpod.net. Let us know what stocks we should be drilling down on. We're back on the drill down. Our guest, Joanne Feeney joining us right now. She's a portfolio manager, advisor, capital management, we're going to drill down on the serial acquirer known as Broadcom with a stock ticker, AVGO, from the days when it was Avago. Uh, Joanne, you've been covering this company ever since its Avago days, um, which is why it's got this weird ticker, not the Broadcom ticker, with a comp- one of the many companies it has merged with over the years. Yeah, absolutely, Corey. Uh, they are an unusual company. Uh, because of all the acquisitions, you know, the challenge for uh, Avago and then Broadcom over the years was to offset the massive repeated increases in their wireless business, which is their high growth business, providing, you know, key parts into high end smartphones. And they never wanted that to be more than, say, 25, 30 percent of the company. So they kept acquiring. And so now you've got a business which has sort of high margin very much market leaders in several different areas, broadband, networking, cloud computing, which are relatively slower growth, high margin, very deep moat around them. Plus you've got the wireless business, which is that faster growth, more cyclical business. So let's talk about, let's start with wireless and talk about, you know, why that's growing so fast and and where their focus is and why they didn't want that to be the sole focus of this company. So, you know, we do. You mentioned cyclicality, and the cyclicality comes around technological um, um, developments. And the biggest development ever, maybe since they first started having wireless, is probably the biggest development. All right, from zero to one is your first big development. Everything else is lower than that. But five G is a massive opportunity for these guys. And it seems to me that um, uh, being all in on wireless at a time when five G build out is happening um, is really good for them uh, on the on the phone handset side. Yeah, absolutely right. And the reason is that uh, the wireless inside of a smartphone gets more and more complex over time, right? You're sending those radio signals across the wireless spectrum, and you're divvying up that spectrum among different providers and among different slots uh, for for different carriers. And you want to make sure that the different parts of the spectrum don't interfere with one another. So you need really good filters, And that's one of the things that Broadcom provides, these very high-end, very precise filters that make sure the signal is very clean. And so as the phones get more complex, as they add more bands from 3G to 4G to 5G, you have more separate bands. Each of them needs a filter. And then you have to also put in filters to keep the bands separated, to keep them from bumping into one another. And those are chips that are actually in the handsets themselves. In in my iPhone, in your Google phone, in your whatever LG phone, whatever you got, your Samsung – You've got specific chips were manufactured and designed by Broadcom. That's correct. And, and they do not just the filters that I mentioned, but they do power amplification of the signal inside the phone. So the content of that particular type of chip, the dollar content, has gone up steadily with each new model of phone. In fact, for the iPhone 12, Broadcom's content went up 40%. From the last Which is model. how much dollar amount? How much is in oh, your thousand dollar iPhone has how much 20, in Broadcom chips? Twenty dollars, maybe. Yeah. And how many chips is that? 
Uh, well, that includes also the Wi-Fi chips that they provide. So, you know, it depends if they're doing discrete filters, how many of those there are. So, I don't know, anywhere between two and five chips, perhaps. And is that uh, – so So if we look through the, the, the family tree that is Broadcom, right, with all these acquisitions after all these years, which part of the business is that – uh, that wireless chipset business that's going into phones? So they recently, or a couple of years ago, they changed their way of reporting. So now they only have two segments, which is really unfortunate for the analysts because you can't take things apart as well. But they now have a semiconductor segment and then a software, an internet, uh, infrastructure software segment. And the semiconductor side is about 73, 74% of the business. And wireless is about, I believe, 50% of that. So it's a good, you know, 30% of but the business was that, at this point. Was that something they acquired? Is that native? Was that Avago, which is one of the, one of the parent companies? Is that Broadcom? Is that, oh, you know, they've done yes. so many acquisitions over the years. You're, you're stretching my knowledge. But that was, <laughs> some of that technology was acquired. And I believe, uh, stretching way back now, I believe it was, some of it was acquired from Infineon. The radio frequency Infineon. front end. This is the gallium nitride. These are the three, five semiconductors. Very difficult to work with. Some of it they had in-house from when they were Hewlett-Packard, when they spun Avago right. out, right, through Agilent into Avago, they took with them the semiconductor side of the Hewlett-Packard business. So they had some pieces, I believe it was the Infineon piece that they acquired, and then so they had all this, you know, capability to do the development work. And that's why they have such a lead, by the way, on the competitors, is they have such a deep bench of knowledge in that space that they've been able to keep ahead of pretty much anybody else except Corvo which does a similar type of filter. Now, you mentioned uh, gallium nitrate in passing, gallium nitrate, gallium arsenide, two uh, technologies used to make these chips. You mentioned how unstable it is. This is really difficult stuff to do. It takes a very long time to build the process and it takes a very long time to just figure out how to make these chips that are more powerful and yet take up less power and less room uh, inside of a phone over time. These guys got themselves in the right place at the right time with this global shortage of all kinds of chips, it seems to me. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and I think the, the shortage is something that's in other areas of their business. It's, it's probably slowing growth more broadly for Broadcom like it is for other semiconductor companies. But having been in that one space early on, they do some of their own manufacturing and then they outsource a lot of manufacturing to win semiconductor over in Taiwan. And so they're such a big customer that they're very likely at the front of the line. And moreover, recently, they've told all of their customers no cancellations on orders, which is very unusual in the chip business. Yeah. So they have very good visibility, and they're not likely to be seeing the same kind of potential double ordering that others are seeing because they're more reliable in terms of delivering their product. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, uh uh, Dan Niles, long, long ago, money manager, one-time uh, uh, sell-side analyst, told me so many years ago, says, Corey, you have to understand, Intel's customers lie to them every day, which is to say that uh, chip customers, semiconductor customers, pretend like they're going to order more in case there's a shortage and then cancel last minute. And that is the very nature of this business and has been for decades. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And, and that's why it was so helpful for Broadcom to be able to say, we are going to commit to being able to deliver, and on your side, you are going to now accept no cancellations. And that really then curtails the double ordering, the extra ordering that so many other chip customers do routinely, uh, particularly for folks like Intel and just a myriad of other chip suppliers. 
Now, let's go through some of their other businesses. You mentioned about a third of their business, or they were trying to keep a third of their business to wireless uh, handsets and wireless in general. They're also very active in the set-top box business, which is all those, you know, which, as we're spending more and more time at home, and we've got modems, we've got uh, uh, set-top boxes for our cable TV at home. Um, we've got, you know, that giant business. And then you've also got the sort of the back-end business of providing the routers and switches that happen on the network to move traffic around, all of these things exploding, uh, you know, surely for the last 30 years plus, but definitely in the last uh, uh, 15 months or so of COVID when we've had a complete re-architecture of where people are downloading information and where they're processing it. And that's just been a booming business for them. Yeah, and it's not likely to slow down. So all this fear that you see out there in the market, people running away a bit from tech stocks is really, uh, I think, misplaced fear. Because, yes, we had this great year. We had lots of sales of PCs and other devices and a buildup of, of the cloud capacity. But that's not slowing down, right? We are seeing more and more data being run through the Internet, not just because people are streaming more, but because 5G, for example, is going to allow you know, more sensors to be placed everywhere, whether it's on factory equipment, whether it's in cars, to detect motion, to detect proximity. And all of those centers, sensors are collecting data. And that data then has to go up into the cloud. It has to be stored, right? And so more and more data means the cloud servers need to be bigger, more powerful, faster. And Broadcom provides the chips to enable all of that. Now, these guys have borrowed just tons and tons of money uh, to, you know, I think, I think over $49 billion in debt of the balance sheet uh, to do these acquisitions. Um, have they been bailed out of that bet by this global demand or that, you know, they're lucky or smart here because clearly we're, we're at a, a point of global demand and not least of which because of COVID, uh, uh, shutting down supply lines and reopening those supply lines, economies reopening and federal, um, uh, well, quantitative easing across the board, sort of juicing the economies of the world has a lot more chips being sold than I can't imagine even these guys might have counted on. You know, they've certainly benefited from the, the policies that have kept interest rates low. They typically borrow to fund acquisitions. And if you look at the history of their acquisitions, they've done a number of them. But when you uh, understand the strategy of the CEO, Hock Tan, uh, first of all, a guy who's very highly respected among money managers because of his diligence in, in doing acquisitions at the right price, he'll borrow a lot, do the acquisition, um, and then he'll typically say, here's the synergies we expect to get from this acquisition. And he'll almost always beat those numbers. He'll almost always deliver ahead of those expectations, generating more free cash flow to pay down the debt. And then continued free cash flow generation is used to fund a, a dividend that is typically and has been increased every single December and to buy back shares and then to roll it into the next um, acquisition target that they have. So, yeah, they've been a little bit lucky that interest rates are so low. They've been able to refinance debt at a low rate. But I think right now they're at a debt to EBITDA level that they're comfortable with. They're trading at about three, a little bit over three times. So that's a comfortable level of debt. And so I would expect them to use cash going forward, raise the dividend, do more buybacks, and looking for the next uh, acquisition target. And when we talk about acquisitions, um, I looked at a slide on their on their their investor relations website that kind of went through some of them, and it is just kind of amazing. You mentioned briefly sort of HP, but go throw HP, AT and T, LSI Logic, Broadcom and Avago, obviously LSI, 
Brocade, uh, CA, Symantec once had a chip product. There are some software products that they acquired. They've done a lot of acquisitions over time, but it is remarkable that when you look at the kinds of companies that do lots and lots of acquisitions, there's usually a ticking time bomb in there. The serial acquirers rarely work out as well as Broadcom has seemed to uh, thus far. Yeah, that's been the concern from a lot of analysts is that they can't keep repeating this. Um, They continue to, though, uh, and I think it's because they do their their homework and they find acquisitions that have been complementary to what they have before. The most controversial acquisition they did was CA because people wondered, why on earth are you guys going at the software and why on earth are you getting into the enterprise software business? Isn't enterprise about to die? Everybody's going to the cloud with their computing. And they proved people wrong. They said, look, enterprise computing is not going away. Companies will still want a lot of stuff on site as well as in the cloud. And they need the software that's bulletproof, that's mission critical to make sure everything is running. So what Broadcom did was they trimmed down the set of customers for CA to just the best customers who needed them the most, who were reliable. They have a 90% retention rate on recurring revenue uh, for that business. And, and it's 90% gross margin at this point, 70% operating margin. And, and so, you know, I expect going forward, they'll find similarly complementary businesses. I mean, that software works well with the hardware side of the business because they already had so many customer relationships in the enterprise space. They were able to leverage those from the hardware side and really cement and expand into the right customer base, the software side. And they have continued to invest in R&D in really big numbers. This hasn't been just sort of acquire something, slap it on, and take the revenues. I mean, they did $5 billion in R&D last year, and that was $300 million more than the year before that. Yeah, that's absolutely essential to the business model, in fact, right? So their model is stay ahead on technology, and they don't shy away from the investments necessary to do that. I mean, back to the wireless space, the fact that they have had the lead in filtering technology and that radio frequency chips that they provide, the Wi-Fi chips that they provide, they're steps ahead of the competition. And that allows them to keep their margins relatively high, and in that case, still see high growth. Other areas of the market are similar. The, the various switching chip technologies that they have developed, leaders in the business, they're having a, a new one they just launched, which will ramp up starting in the second half of this year. And that'll help, again, buttress their margins. They're not going for high growth. They're going for leadership and deep moats and remaining the number one or the number two market share player in each of the businesses where they decide to uh, participate. Do you think generally the tech spending is less cyclical than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago when there were sort of cycles connected to either upgrades in, in wireless infrastructure before that it was upgrades in, you know, the latest uh, Wintel upgrade, whether it was a, 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 the new Pentium or the new OS from Microsoft? It seems that that cycle is kind of broken. Yeah, Corey, you, you remember those times when the cycle was triggered by Intel or You just or called Microsoft. me old. You just called me old. I heard that. We all heard that. You, you, you and I are in the same boat here, so no worries. Um, but, but that's right. And I, I think some people have a little bit of trouble updating their minds on this. You know, people still talk about the semi-cycle. That semi-cycle was classically created by Intel. The new chip would come out, sell a bunch more PCs, sell a bunch more servers, and the software would go with it. And it was very much of a boom or bust cycle. Now think about where all the semiconductors are, right? Way more in cars than there used to be. And with electric vehicles coming, there's going to be more still. But also in household appliances, refrigerators, ovens, toasters, 
factory automation, the more robotics there is, the more chips, medical equipment, right? Diagnostics, surgical equipment, all of these things have such a reliance now on electronics that it really has washed out the cycle. And plus you have less of that inventory build and, and bust that you used to have. Now that might change in the wake of I was going to say, that's, you, you do until you don't. That's how inventory build works, right? I mean, yeah. you know, they've got a great deal with their suppliers right now where they're not allowing them to charge any money back. But is their content that unique where they can really continue to keep that pressure on their clients and not get uh, uh, essentially chargebacks or too much inventory building on the channel uh, that, that they're immune from this? Or is this just a temporary state of affairs? You know, it, companies that have products or chips that are used for a particular generation of, of tool, whether it's something that's going into a Cisco router or whether it's going someplace else like the iPhone, you can't build those up so much, right? They're only going to work for the current generation of equipment. Interesting. Whereas other companies like a Texas Instruments or a microchip, you know, the customers can build up if they want because they know those chips are going to be useful. They're not going to, they're not going to expire, right? And so, so I essentially think like the, the dumber chips, the micron chips and so on are the kinds yeah. of things that you're going to use in this gen. You're going to use it in the next gen or you could if you needed to. So you buy a bunch now and then maybe if you have too much, you can cancel orders later. Yeah, I think that's right. So I think they're less vulnerable to that uh, that kind of cycle. And, and they're in the middle of a technology upgrade in networking, in cloud. And, and so they're eager to get uh, those products built to make the cloud faster, to increase bandwidth, right? To get them out for the next iPhone. I'm in this studio because the sound is good, but I'm in this office because I have got four teenagers at home, all of them on Zoom calls, all of them probably playing video games and watching TikTok at the same time. There was no way to do a podcast from that house despite the best that uh, Verizon or AT&T or whoever is providing my broadband could offer. Um, it is amazing how the networks have transformed this year. But I think you've seen a lot of spending on the edge of the network to re-architect those networks for work from home. Does that growth aspect of Broadcom's business uh, start to pull back a little now that we're going to go back to working in the office? It could. Um, we could definitely see a slowdown in that element of their business. But I think a larger part of their business is to the cloud. And so while the end uses of the cloud might shift a little, a little bit away from building up the home network and more towards enterprises going back to spending, because remember a lot of enterprises last year were short on cash. And so they deferred a lot of their IT infrastructure plans to this year and next year. So while home spenders might decline, the enterprise spending, we're already seeing it in the data, is starting to pick up. Plus you have the new spending coming from the build out of the 5G network, right? All of the spectrum auctions that we saw, you know, late last year, right? right? right. That's all Fast yet fortunes. to be built network. And so there's a lot of opportunity there. Joanne Feeney, thank you very much. Joanne Feeney is Portfolio Manager with Advisors Capital Management. How can our listeners uh, stay in touch with, with what's happening at Advisor Capital Management? Advisorscapital.com or acmwealth.com. I, I wrote a commentary this morning. People can check that out. And we have lots of other commentaries and content there for, uh, for clients. Awesome. Joanne Feeney, thank you very much. All right, up next on the drill down, the bite. Okay, I mentioned Broadcom. I took a big gamble, borrowing a lot of money, adding debt to do these acquisitions. So we're going to compare it to some other companies with that bite. We're going to look at debt to free cash flow. Some context. AMD has 0.2 times debt to free cash flow. Qualcomm has two and a half times debt to free cash flow. So what about Broadcom? We'll have that one number that means a whole lot 
when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you by Era, the equity platform with event intelligence and insights for fundamental investors. Seamlessly connect to any earnings call and take advantage of Era's AI-powered tools. Work faster and smarter with Era.com. And subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform: iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, Podbean. We got it all. Hit that subscribe button and catch every show. And remember to join the drill down on Twitter and Instagram at drilldownpod, and check out our website bizpod.net. All right, we're back with the drill down bite. That one number that tells us a whole lot: debt to free cash flow. Again, context, AMD, 0.2 times debt-to-free cash flow. Qualcomm, 10 times more than that, two and a half times debt-to-free cash flow. Well, Broadcom, their debt-to-free cash flow is three and a half times what's $42 billion in debt. I may have said that number wrong before, but $42 billion in debt, a lot of debt for this company. But they, uh, you know, they, they made a big bet on uh, growth in chips, and boy, that seems like they really caught it right. All right. Thanks for listening to Drill Down. We appreciate your time. As always, check us out on the socials at Drill Down Pod. I'm Corey Johnson. He's Isaac Webster. Thanks for listening. Three, two,